Psalm 98, we're, we're wrapping up this series about how our emotions matter to God and we can bring our emotions to him, all, all of it. You know, the, the good stuff, the, the mess, the, the ugliness, all of it, right? We can bring our emotions to the Lord. So we've looked at how to bring our guilt to the Lord and our envy to the Lord, our fear and our confusion to the Lord. And we wanna finish up, I think it's appropriate for, given that we're looking at the Psalms to finish up by asking the question, how do we bring our praise to the Lord? The greatest privilege of all to bring our praise to the Lord. We exist for the glory of God, to glorify him and to enjoy him. So how do we do that? And this psalm is here to instruct us in how to do that. Psalm 98, I hope you'll follow along as I read from scripture. A psalm. Sing a new song to the Lord, for he has performed wonders. His right hand and holy arm have won him victory. The Lord has made his victory known. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen our God's victory. Let the whole earth shout to the Lord. Be jubilant, shout for joy and sing. Sing to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and melodious song, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout triumphantly in the presence of the Lord, our King. Let the sea and all that fills it, the world and all those who live in it, resound. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. So many years ago, an Old Testament scholar who specializes in the Psalms suggested that all the Psalms could fit into one of three buckets, three categories, and he called them Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, and Psalms of reorientation. So Psalms of orientation would be Psalms like Psalm 8, Psalm 24, these are, um, these are moments where life is good, where, where praise is rendered and God's blessing is flowing, kind of life lessons are packaged in pleasant lyrics. So there are many psalms like that. And then there are psalms of disorientation, right? And these are sort of shrill speeches offered in prayer to God, lament to God. And in other words, those psalms, psalms of disorientation are something is broken and it can't be fixed. Um, here we are and the water is rising around us and there's no place of rescue. These are Psalms like Psalm 13 and Psalm 35 and we looked at a Psalm of disorientation last week. Psalm 44 is a Psalm of disorientation. But then there are Psalms of reorientation. Psalms like Psalm 29 and 47 and really almost all the Psalms that cluster in the neighborhood of our Psalm, 97, 98, 99, moving into the hundreds, lots of Psalms where the people experienced hardship but they're coming through on the other side. They're seeing that God had faithfully held them through thick and thin in the difficulties of their circumstances. There was a song, I cut my teeth uh, as a kid on songs by Andre Crouch, the gospel artist, and one of his songs was called Through It All. And he sang, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. And I think the Psalms of reorientation are basically humming the same melody with Andre Crouch. Through it all, 
we've learned something. There's a reorienting of the heart back in praise and joy in the God who answers, right? So Psalm 98, in contrast to some of the things we've looked at so far, right? So we've, we've talked about this kind of being the controlling thesis of this series, that the Psalms give us a language for every season of the soul. So we've got something we can say when our soul is stuck in fear or stuck in worry and envy and anxiety and, and confusion, right? But in contrast to those other sort of languages we've learned to speak in the presence of God, bringing our praise to the Lord is not just for one season. It's for every season. So there's a sense in which Psalm 98 is the soundtrack for the whole life of faith. This is the music of the entire Christian Life, and I, I would suggest to us that it contains, this psalm contains a threefold call to bring our praise to the Lord. The first is this, let God's people praise him. Let God's people praise him. So right out of the gate, it begins with a command verb. It's an imperative. It's not asking you if you wanna sing, it's commanding you to start. Sing a new song to the Lord. One of the wonderful things about the Psalms is the Psalms, whenever they give a command for us to do something, they always give you a reason that you should do it. It's not just a command for the command's sake. So Psalm 47, clap your hands, all you people, shout to God with loud songs of praise, for the Lord is a great king over all the earth. It's undergirding it, it's, it's grounding your doxology in theology. The reality of who God is and what God has done grounds the imperative of singing and clapping, right? So it's always telling you, if it's gonna tell you what to do, then it's gonna tell you why you should do it, to motivate you to do it. And the same thing happens here. You see in verse one, sing a new song to the Lord for, there's the why, for he has performed wonders. The, the word wonder here, it often refers in the Old Testament to the miraculous acts of God by which he saves his people from their enemies, from their foes, from things that are too strong for them, from Pharaoh in Egypt, from the oppression of the Assyrian army, right? So these are stories of God's grace and redemptive rescue, right? So this Psalm speaks, you see the language there, of God's right hand and his holy arm. So that's, that's a metaphor, right? Uh, theologians sometimes call that an anthropomorphism, which just means it's ascribing a human attribute to God. It doesn't mean God literally has arms, but, but there's, it's a metaphor. So what is God's right arm? Well, God, through the Old Testament, he is, if you will, he's right-handed. So this is God flexing. God's right arm is his control over the world. It, has to, it speaks of his sovereignty and his power that nobody can stop him. When he intends to do something, try to stop him. Right? That, his right arm is laid bare, and whoever his right arm is laid bare for it's a good day for them. <laughs> and whoever is oppressing those people, it's a really bad day for them. So it's God's right arm has worked salvation for him or has brought him victory. So that word victory, you see the word victory there in a couple different places. It's often translated salvation. It's actually the Hebrew word Yeshua. It's the very name that was given when the angel said to Mary, I want you to name the child Yeshua. I want you to name the child salvation because that's what he's coming to do. Call his name Yesu, Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save. The, the late theologian Edmund Clowney, 
he used to say that you can summarize the entire Bible with one sentence from the Bible. And that one sentence from the Bible is, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this Psalm teaches us, friends, to rejoice in what God has done. This is not a psalm about you. <laughs> it is not a psalm about what you've done. It's not a psalm about uh, your spiritual performance this past week, your devotion to God, your sacrifices for God. This psalm reserves the glory for God and for God alone. Friends, just so we're all clear, your salvation was not a mutual venture between God and you. You know, where you brought your best to the table and he brought his best to the table and the outcome was pretty amazing. That, that is, that's not biblical theology of salvation, right? The, the only thing that we brought to the table was the infinite debt which God forgives in Christ. You wanna talk about your contribution and what you laid on the table. What you laid was sin. <laughs> that's what you laid, infinite debt is all that we had to offer. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian from a couple centuries ago, he said it this way, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Look, the reason that we bring our praise to God, no matter the season, hardship, joy, we bring our praise to God in every season, we do that because this is the story of how things went down. We brought the sin, God sent the lamb, the lamb took the judgment so sinners can rejoice. How good is that? That is amazing news, that is the central message of the Bible, the central message of the Christian faith, that is what Christians call a gospel, it is good news. Verse one, it's translated in the English Standard Version that God has done, I love the phrase, marvelous things. Marvelous things. Uh, the late John Stott was a New Testament commentator and I, I love his remark on verse one. Here's what he says. It certainly foreshadows that mightier salvation from sin, Satan, and death which God has brought to us through Jesus Christ, his son. This, I love what he says here, this is the most marvelous of the marvelous things which God has done. Just put this in perspective. If this psalm sounds joyful, imagine how joyful the psalmist would be if he saw what we've seen. If he lived in the fullness of time on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, looking back to that mightiest of God's mighty deeds that we see in Jesus Christ, right? We got a different vantage point than he had. He's exploding in praise and we see far more than what he saw. We, got, we have redemptive history in HD. We see such glorious colors on display. The triune God of grace, what did he do for your soul? He saved you stem to stern. He is the author and finisher of your faith. He planned your redemption before time began. Go read Ephesians 1 and just let your head explode with the Apostle Paul when he bursts out in doxology. Read it and sing along with the Apostle in Ephesians 1. God planned it from eternity past. He accomplished it in time through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished from the cross, what did he mean? He meant no more debt, the price is fully paid. No more penalty, justice has been satisfied. 
no more condemnation for all who are in Christ. That's good news. That's worth singing about for all eternity, right? It was, so it was planned by the Father in eternity past. It was pulled off by, accomplished by the Son, and it was applied to your soul, brought to your doorstep by the awakening, convicting, and renewing power of the Holy Spirit. It's a total salvation. It was done by his right arm and his right arm alone. So we give our praise to God and God alone. Friend, maybe this morning that message of good news has not clicked on the inside of your soul. And I hope it's clicking right now. That the Holy Spirit is turning on the lights so that there is an internal song that begins to rise. And what I would say to you is if that's starting to happen, it's time to start repenting and it's time to start believing. Turn from whatever it is that you were trusting in five minutes ago and put your trust in the one savior of the world, the one hope of the world. Our love of sin will not lead to joy. Our love of self will lead to ruin. It will lead to destruction. But God's love in Christ, apprehended by your soul, leads to pleasures evermore and lots and lots of singing. You just look at this text and go back later on, just circle all the times that he's talking about songs and singing and shouting and joy. There's a lot of singing that's created in the hearts of people who have been made glad through the gospel. Look, read through the whole book of Psalms and what you find is everywhere in the Psalms you find that the saved are the singers. The redeemed of the Lord are saying so. They are announcing the glory of what God has done. They are, verse one, singing a new song to the Lord. You don't have to twist their arms. You don't have to cajole them to do it. It's a natural, unbidden response of the heart that's been taken captive by the grace of God. So let God's people praise him. Second, let the whole earth praise him. Verse four, let the whole earth (laughs) shout to the Lord, be jubilant, shout for joy, and sing. There are are places in the world where it is appropriate to be quiet. So uh, a monastery, um, a library, the friend who is studying next to you in the library will appreciate it if you're speaking in sort of hushed tones. When you have to speak, you're sort of whispering. The library will appreciate that. Psalm 98 wasn't written in the library. Psalm 98, if you sing it right, it'll get you kicked out of the library. It is a, it is a noisy song. There are trumpets blaring and blasting. There are people all over the earth who are singing and shouting and jubilant in the presence of God. And it's getting louder as you move into verse four because the audience is getting bigger. The participants, is that list is growing. Right again, look at verse four. Let the whole earth shout to the Lord and sing. What is the dynamic that's going on in verse four? It's this, God is inviting the nations into everlasting worship. God is inviting the nations into everlasting worship. Notice our God calls all the inhabitants, everybody on earth, to come into his presence with singing, and we're even told what's the content of the song of all these people, and it's, you, O Lord, are the king, verse six. They're singing to God the king amid shouts of joy. Friends, this, is, this psalm opens a, a window 
into the new creation, into the new Jerusalem. It is a, it is a peek into what is coming next in redemptive history. You think about the Olympics. I love the Olympics. I love watching the opening ceremony because the field is full of the nations and the stadium is full of the nations and their flags and their colors. Just all these nations around the world are represented there, right? Well, imagine that stadium, but multiplied a few times over and it's filled this time with people from every tribe and tongue and nation and they're shouting and singing and praising the king. Take it in, Christian. We don't just rejoice in the remembrance of what God has done. We rejoice in the certainty of where history is headed. We rejoice in the certainty of where history is headed. If, if the voice of the inhabitants of the earth, if that's not loud enough for you, here come the instruments in verse five. We're gonna need some instruments to accompany all this singing. And the instruments are loud ones, so let's get the lyre, let's get some, some trumpets, let's get some ram's horns, let's start them blaring. That's what ram's horns do. Let's let the ram's horns do what they were made to do, start blaring. Just this music is going out through the whole earth. What an awesome vision that is of the future. Um, my wife Paula and I, we celebrated our 20th anniversary um, some years back, and, and we went to Asheville, North Carolina. We had not been there before, but people said it's kind of, there's some beautiful things to see, interesting town, and there's places you can go hike, beautiful things in nature that you can go check out as well. So we went to Asheville. We, we stayed in this really cool place downtown. The windows weren't sealed properly, so you could hear people talking outside. It was like you were wearing headphones of the conversation of the people having just outside the door. But the interesting thing that I didn't know about Asheville, that probably a lot of other people just did, is uh, Asheville's extremely musical city. So in some ways it felt like New Orleans, my hometown, because there was just music pouring out of every open door in, in the town. And uh, one night, it was Friday night, and we heard some music that was going on. It was different than some of the electric guitars that were playing in different places. It was like singing of people, and it seemed to be getting louder. So we, we left our hotel room, and we just started walking in the direction of the growing song. And we ended up at the town square and there were these, all these people in the town square of Asheville and they were beating drums and they were singing songs together and there was, and there was a smell and I was like, Paul, I think they're burning incense. She said, that's not incense. Uh, <laughs> so uh, learned something else about Asheville, uh, Asheville incense. But, um, but, but leave aside that last part, right? So that's the distraction. Leave the, the haze uh, aside, because that really doesn't connect to the rest of the illustration. It's supposed to land somewhere entirely different, right? The, the point is, is we heard music and we heard singing and we were drawn to the song. And that's kind of what's going on here, right? In, in scripture, the praise of God's people has an evangelistic effect on the world. The praise of God's people is itself a magnet for the nations. You even see that in the Psalms themselves. So Psalm 126 says this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we, God's people, were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then and our tongues with shouts 
of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. Our praise is meant to draw others. Here come the nations and their eavesdropping on the worship. They hear it coming from down the street, the worship of God's people, and they're drawn to it, and they say, the way these people are singing, it seems that the Lord has done great things for them. It seems that the Lord is holding them up. It seems that the Lord is pouring joy into their hearts. What is this joy? The Apostle Peter in the New Testament, he urges persecuted Christians, exiled Christians, and he says, want you to have an impact on the world around you. Let's start here. Step one, proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he goes on to say, right after he says that, he says, who knows what will happen when the world hears you singing the praises of the one who called you out of darkness. He says, maybe they'll join in and they will glorify God with us on the day of his visitation. The evangelistic impact of the worship of God's people. Let God's people praise him. Let the whole earth praise him. Let all creation praise him. Let all creation praise him. It is the most comprehensive invitation list to this worship gathering imaginable. It begins with all the house of Israel is summoned to the praise of God, and then all the inhabitants of the earth are summoned to the praise of God, and then all creation is summoned to the praise of God. Verse seven, let the sea kick in, right? Let the sea and all that fills it, the world and those who live in it resound. So he's just said everything in the water Praise God, everything on the land. Praise God. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains shout together for joy before the Lord. It's a reminder of words that we would sing in a hymn, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Let the whole earth shout for joy, you know, the, the song that we often sing at Christmas, Joy to the World, written by Isaac Watts, it actually wasn't written to describe the birth of Jesus at all. It's not describing really the first advent of Christ, but the second advent of Christ, his return. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes, this is second advent, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Well, where we're sitting right here, there's curses everywhere. Thorns everywhere. So this is describing some future return, some future advent which drives pain out of the world, sin out of the world. He, basically, Watts' point was he was reflecting actually on Psalm 98 and he was saying history in Christ is headed for joy. Global joy, global praise. Heaven and nature sing. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. But I think the amazing thing about this psalm isn't so much the ones that are giving praise to God, but the focus of the praise 
itself. The focus of their praise is future judgment. That's the last verse, right? So, so shout together, you see it, for, for joy before the Lord. What's their motivation? For he's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world righteously and the peoples fairly. There is no rest for God's people until every vestige of evil is removed from this world at the return of Jesus Christ, the King. He returns and he puts an end to the rebellion. He, he drives sin and evil out of the world and with it go all the misery that was attached to the sin of the world. So take that in. Think about the implications of that certain future, the blessed hope. No more ambulance sirens wailing in the middle of the night. No more traumatic memories. No more persecuted believers. No more vacant stares of people who are trying to put their life back together. Everything that's been wrong will be made right and all creation will feel it. All creation will feel it. When God comes in judgment, every spiritual power and every human power in this world that is opposed to Christ the King will be shut out in outer darkness. And what starts in the New Jerusalem? Singing. One of my favorite passages in the book of Isaiah says, therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy will be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The return of Jesus for all who trust in Jesus Christ, you will hear a sigh around the world. The entire people of God get to breathe because everything's right. What's it have to do with us? How, how do I bring my praise to the Lord? Particularly if maybe, maybe you're saying, how do I bring my praise to the Lord? Because I'm still stuck in Psalm 44 where we were last week. Honestly, I'm in a Psalm of disorientation right now. This one's not connecting with me as much as Psalm 44 was connecting with me. How can I sing from here? I love the counsel that comes from an author named Sam Storms. So I'm gonna read an extended quote from him. He says, perhaps you are in a place of extreme emotional brokenness. Your life is crumbling all around you. Nothing has worked out the way you hoped. All that you've strived to achieve is disintegrating before your eyes and you are helpless to stem the tide. All that you once valued is vanishing. You feel nothing, your spirit is dry and barren, and you sense an ugly anger rising up in your heart. Can you worship in a way that honors and glorifies God? Yes, so what should you do? Sing anyway. Worship anyway. Praise God for his matchless worth and his unexcelled beauty. What I'm advocating is not hypocrisy because God is glorified by your longing for the joy that is to be found in him even when you are not yet experiencing it. 
God is honored by that spark of anticipated gladness that leads you to praise him even when you don't feel like it. Friend, the most compelling praise you'll see this week will be offered by broken people who refuse to tie their ultimate hope to this world. Can I say that again? The most compelling praise you'll see this week will be offered by broken people who refuse to tie their ultimate hope to this world. You know, the the Psalms are arranged very intentionally. It's, It's a crafted volume of collected poems and prayers. And and it breaks out, the one big book that we sometimes call the Psalter, breaks out into five mini collections of Psalms. So book one is Psalm one through 41. Book two is Psalm 42 to 72. Book three is Psalm 73 to 89. Book four is Psalm 90 to 106. We're in book four in Psalm 98. Book five is Psalm 107 to 150. So again, we're in book four. Just flip back to Psalm 90 so you can see it. Flip back from where you are to Psalm 90 and you'll see the words, you see them there? Book four, Psalm 90 through 106. And you can see those book arrangements as you move through the Psalms. The the Psalms are arranged in these mini collections to tell a story. There's a linear movement, a theme that's moving from anguish to joy. And the primary orientation of God's people through it all is praise. And one of the ways that you see that is that each one of those, so geek out with me for just a second. All right, each one of those mini Psalms books, the five of them, all of them end with a doxology. I'll just show them to you so you don't have to turn. At the end of book one, here are the last words at the end of book one. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. The last words of book two. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel who alone does wonders. Blessed be his glorious name forever. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Amen and amen. End of book three. Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. The end of book four. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen, hallelujah. And then the last words of book five. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. What carries the believer through every season of the soul is praise. God gets praise no matter what? There was a song by a gospel artist named Tremaine Hawkins from years ago, and she talks about all these painful experiences. And she said, I lost this, and I lost that, and I lost that. And the last line of the chorus is, but I never lost my praise. I lost a lot of things in this hard world, but I never lost my praise. There was a hymn that was composed in the middle of the Civil War and the hymn reflects themes that are shot through the book of Psalms, the themes of pain and hardship and the reality of life in a fallen world, but also mixed with God and his sovereignty and his power and his faithfulness and the hope of what's to come. And here's part of the hymn that he wrote in the middle of the Civil War. My life goes on in endless song above earth's lamentations. I hear the real though far off hymn that hails a new creation. 
Above the tumult and the strife, I hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? What though my joys and comforts die? The Lord my Savior liveth. And though the darkness round me close, songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? The Psalms, Pastor Daniel said this so well a few weeks ago, the Psalms don't restrain our emotions, they train, they direct our emotion, they train our hopes, they resize our fears, they deepen our joys. And so I wanna finish really where we began this series, which is we need, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to commit to three things. We're gonna run to God together. We're going to remember the gospel and we're gonna help one another. And Psalm 98 is telling us, as we do these things, as we remember the gospel, the God who has saved us is going to instill in our hearts a hope of a certain future that he's gonna make all things new. So what are we gonna do as we walk through this hard world? We're gonna sing a new song to the Lord.